0: This is the moment that each one of us has to be bolder, braver, more angry, more outraged, and not be afraid of our rage. You don't get to talk about my body. You don't get to ignore my abuse. I'm a survivor, and that, I know, for all the survivors here, I know the pain we're in today. I know what we felt watching that hearing and how we felt re-raped by that hearing. It was a gang rape of justice. That's what it was.
1: I was in front of an audience of white people, you know, like 20 minutes ago, and I said, you know you people are not white people, right? You know, that, that, that makes no sense. There's no white country, there's no white people, there's no white religion, there's no white language. There's actually no white color. I mean, if you if you saw somebody white, you'd be you know watching the Living Dead, right?
2: I think the vehicles will have a really great impact very quickly, uh, locally. Um, DC has some of the worst air in the country. We have lots of vehicles going through the city on the Beltway, and so having an impact on what types of vehicles are being driven through the city um, can have a really significant impact on local air quality. Welcome to
3: On the Ground, ground OnTheGroundShow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And for the second Friday in a row, as we go to broadcast, the Senate has a vote scheduled on whether to confirm Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. And just as last week, protesters are continuing to converge on D.C. On Saturday, the March for Black Women rallied on the National Mall, and there have been demonstrations every day since then. On Thursday, 300 people, almost all women, were arrested after a mass rally at the Hart Senate office building. Dozens more held a people's filibuster, planned to be an all-night vigil on Thursday night near the steps of the Capitol. Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts was one of those who spoke to the crowd.
4: I watched as 11 powerful men tried to help one more powerful man make it to an even more powerful position in our country. Yeah, shame is right. I watched it, and I watched as these men didn't care what they had to say. They didn't care what the truth was. They didn't care what they have to swallow as long as they can hold on to power. Well, I've seen it, and I'm sick of it. I am angry and I own my anger over this. I am angry for everyone who is denied power, who is denied the opportunity to be heard in this capital. I am angry when women are denied that opportunity. I am angry when African Americans are denied that opportunity. I am angry when Latinos are denied that opportunity. When Native Americans are denied that opportunity. When LGBTQ Americans are denied that opportunity. When students are denied that opportunity. When seniors are denied that opportunity. You bet, I'm angry. But I got a plan. Yeah. My plan's got three parts. Part one take back the Senate. Yeah. Part two take back the House. Yeah. And part three return the power to the people where it belongs. Thank you.
3: And as the drama on Capitol Hill continues to unfold, there are other important matters deserving attention. After being shamed as the richest man in the world whose employees qualify for food stamps, Jeff Bezos, CEO of Amazon and owner of the Washington Post, raised the salaries for 350,000 Amazon employees this week to $15 an hour. Senator Bernie Sanders, who led a campaign for the raise, sent out an email praising the raises as a people's victory. He said, The time is now for Walmart, McDonald's, and the fast food industry, the airline industry, and the retail industry in general to start paying their workers a living wage, at least $15 per hour. The American people are tired of having to subsidize profitable corporations who pay their workers wages that are so low that many of them are forced to go on food stamps, Medicaid, subsidized housing and other federal programs, end quote. Also this week, peace activists put out a reminder of a very important anniversary. Afra Abdullah has more.
4: This is the beginning of 18 years the United States has been in Afghanistan. 18 years. It's almost double the the time the Soviet Union was in Afghanistan. We know how it turned out for them, and we're twice as dumb as they are. 18 years that the United States has been at war in Afghanistan.
5: Wednesday, October 2nd, marked the 17th anniversary that the U.S. has been at war in Afghanistan. In front of the White House and later at Busboys and Poets, activists, anti-war organizations, veterans, and protesters gathered to discuss the impact of entering an 18th year at war. According to Brian Terrell, co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence, the war in Afghanistan has become our new normal. Terrell believes people should not be unsensitized or tolerate the continuation of war. We need to say no. We need to say that... 17 years is intolerable, and the war has to stop. He says unless we demand the war to end, the war will only continue to expand.
6: I really believe that saying no to this war now is the price of citizenship, maybe even the price of humanity. How human can we be if we can continue to ignore this?
5: At Busboys and Poets, activist and student Hora Rifi, an Afghan youth, spoke about how the war has impacted his life.
2: Personally, it put an upside down impact uh, on my family. I haven't seen my dad uh, after the 9-11 Washington.
5: David Swanson from World Beyond War says the sad reality is that many Americans don't even know why we're still at war and that over the years we have been fed many stories about Afghanistan.
4: There has never been a good war or a bad peace, and when it became convenient in this country for people to pretend that Iraq
1: was a bad war, and therefore Afghanistan was a good war so that no one had to appear to be
4: against war in general, a lot of lies were created about Afghanistan.
5: In the end, activists believe it is not to the advantage of the United States to continue with this war, and are demanding a resolution to stop an 18th year from happening. Afra Abdullah. Washington. Thank you, Afra. For
3: more international news, I'm joined now by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Well, the FBI's additional background check on Brett Kavanaugh was concluded very quickly, perhaps too quickly, according to several observers. And uh, as we speak, the Senate is scheduled to begin a procedural vote to, to his confirmation. And internationally, the same type of bullying tactics to ram through what the, the GOP is trying to do. We saw Mike Pompeo and John Bolton take more aggressive moves against Iran. So there's a lot there. So just give me your take on what's happening this week. Well,
6: first of all, press reports indicate that this so-called FBI investigation or background check is something of a whitewash. Apparently, they did not talk to a number of key witnesses. Apparently, they did not talk to Dr. Blasey Ford, who during her testimony a few days ago talked about a house in a certain neighborhood that I thought the FBI would then go pick her up and take her to that neighborhood so that they could pin down the location of that house. She talked about how Brett Kavanaugh's comrade, Mark Judge, she ran into him bagging groceries, and that would help to pinpoint the date of the incident where she was assaulted. So the FBI has not necessarily done a very good job in terms of this so-called background check. Mr. Trump has been typically polarizing, particularly with his unwarranted attack on Dr. Blasey Ford at the campaign rally in South Haven, Mississippi just a few days ago. Apparently the tactic has worked because press reports tend to suggest that the alleged wavering Republicans like Senator Collins of Maine and Senator Flake of Arizona will presumably be voting for Brett Kavanaugh to take his seat on the high court. And as your question slash comment suggests, this has received a complimentary push on the international scene. That is to say, Mr. Trump's bullying domestically trying to, Bogard Brett Kavanaugh's way onto the U.S. Supreme Court has been complimented by his bullying against Iran. An international court suggested that Washington was being inconsistent with a 1955 treaty with Iran that called for positive relations with Tehran and the tightened sanctions that Washington is imposing, which is going to harm children in the first place was seen as inconsistent with that treaty and of course what washington did via the statement and words of secretary of state michael pompeo was to repudiate the treaty i'm afraid to say that this brings us one step closer to a conflict with iran with unimaginable consequences the ray of light the ray of hope is the fact that a number of Western European nations led by Germany and France, and interestingly enough, including Britain, are going to try to circumvent these tightened sanctions targeting Iran by setting up a so-called special purpose vehicle that will engage in barter with the Iranian regime. And hopefully that will help to circumvent the domination of the dollar and U.S. domination of financial institutions as well, so, hopefully, this Iranian crisis can potentially possibly end up with a net plus.
3: There was one article that I saw referenced that I thought made a, a very good link between what's happening domestically and internationally. Marjorie Cohn, professor emerita at the Thomas Jefferson School of Law, wrote the piece, Five Reasons Why the GOP is Rushing to Confirm Kavanaugh, a truth out. And in the article, she makes the point that Kavanaugh's love for executive power might mean that he would encourage the president to disobey any law that he deems unconstitutional, including customary and treaty-based international law, which refers right back to that treaty of amity that you're just talking about. So he would only add fuel to the fire if he was on the court. I'm afraid
6: you're right. And I think Part of the frightening aspect of a potential Justice Kavanaugh is that he would enter the court perhaps even more embittered than Clarence Thomas and would proceed to wreak revenge against those he perceived, in his words, of destroying his reputation, destroying his family, etc. Uh, This notion that you put forward about his expansive view of executive power is part of the nightmare Scenario that some of us are now envisioning, which makes it all the more important that on Election Day in November, that minimally, as polls suggest, the House be taken away from control of the GOP, and then we begin to subpoena Mr. Trump's tax return, particularly in the light of that New York Times story of a few days ago that suggested that he has constructed a fable about being a self made billionaire that as early as the age of three.
4: He right. was receiving the
6: equivalent of $200,000 a year from his wealthy father. And certainly, we need to flip the house so that we can begin an offensive against the Trump White House.
3: Well, we will keep watching and be ever vigilant on these issues. I've been joined by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you. And finally, in culture and media, the National Solar Tour, billed as the largest grassroots solar renewable energy and sustainable living event in the nation, is happening October 6th and 7th here in the D.C. area and around the country. Solar homes, businesses, nonprofit organizations are hosting open houses, and you can visit nationalsolartour.org for more information. The D.C. Palestinian Film and Arts Festival continues through Sunday, October 7th at locations around D.C. The full program is at dcpfaf.org, which stands for the D.C. Palestinian Film and Arts Festival.org. Finally, the new entertainment and sports arena, the practice facility for the Washington Wizards, is opening on October 6th with Mary J. Blige and featuring Jacob Banks. The venue is located on the former St. Elizabeth's Hospital campus near the Congress Heights Metro Station in southeast Washington. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, author Walter Mosley, stay with us. This is On the Ground, thegroundshow.org Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. And next is the second part of my interview with the author, Walter Mosley, who was in D.C. this week in support of his new novel, John Woman. This part of our talk begins with Mosley answering my question about his statements on the non-existence of
5: white people.
1: The idea of race came when people came from Europe, which no, there were no white people in Europe before they came to the New World. But they became white people because they had to kill the red people to take their lands, and they had to enslave the black people to increase that land. Yeah, sure. And they're so crazy that they don't know that that was a creation. They actually believe. I was in front of an audience of white people, you know, like 20 minutes ago. And I said, you know, you people are not white people, right? You know, that, that, that makes no sense. There's no white country, there's no white people, there's no white religion, there's no white language. There's actually no white color. I mean, if you, if you saw somebody white, you'd be you know, watching Living Dead, right?
3: I'm interested in your pressing that issue with a white audience because there's the biological reality and the historical reality that you mentioned. But the fact is that here in the 21st century, there is a whole social construct of whiteness, of course, that you know about that is very powerful. But it's a lie. I mean, there is a construct. But one
1: of the things my book, one of the things that my book is about, is that human beings don't have the the width to understand their own history. It, it's really true. We don't have the width that you can say I'm white. If somebody walk up to me and say I'm white, I'm saying, man, what does that mean? I'm white. <laughs> what does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. If you tell me you're Ethiopian. I know what you're talking about. If you tell me you're French, I know. If you tell me that you're a Catholic living in the Vatican, I know what you're talking about. If you tell me you're white, that doesn't mean anything. And the thing is, is that people don't know that. They say it and they believe it. And the biggest problem in this world is to know things that are not true, but not know that they're not true. Richard III is vilified from Shakespeare on down for 500 years for being an evil man. But once they found his body in the parking lot in England, they realized, hey, wait a second, he was on the side of the working man. Maybe he was a villain back then, but today he's a hero.
3: Your history changes in your future. I also wanted to know if you would... Talk a little bit about kind of going forward from 12 Steps Toward Political Revelation. You you talked about how profound economic inequalities stem self-destructive behavior. And I'm looking at wealth and privilege stemming self-destructive behavior. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, I have
1: a very kind of practical thought about that because wealth is based on labor. Absolutely. No, there's nothing else. The only, only place wealth comes from is from labor.
3: Maybe someone else's labor also.
1: Well, I mean, it comes from labor. Let's, let's leave it at that. I mean, I agree with you, but let's leave it at that. It comes from labor. So you have, let's say you have uh, 2 billion, 3 billion laborers. They create the wealth of the world. That wealth, because it comes from a, a finite number. It has a finite number. And so therefore, each laborer has, in the beginning, an equal portion of that labor. But as it goes on, some person you know, becomes unemployed, another person becomes a billionaire, another person is making uh, $10 an hour, another person is making $43,000 an hour. What happens is and inequality starts to create among people. This is not a racial argument. It isn't even a gender argument, though it is in some ways. And so, so what you have in the end is a world of inequality based on labor, in which people think, well, all labor is equal, but it isn't. And that if I have a billion dollars and you have a hundred dollars, that's the political disparity of our world.
3: Yeah, but I guess I'm really talking about how wealth and privilege stem self-destructive behavior so that that person with that billion dollars is shielded from the same type of consequences that that person, you know, you you were just talking about with their hands on the steering wheel, who hasn't done anything, that person might be facing being shot to death by the police. But the person with wealth and privilege with that billion dollars is in a gated community and surrounded by lawyers and able to pay off people. So that's what I'm really talking about.
1: I love having this conversation with you. I just want to say that. Because what you just said is very true, but it's simplistic. If you are a billionaire living in one of those places, which you can be because they don't believe in race over there, if you all of a sudden said, well, listen, every woman who works for me, I'm going to give her a year off when she has her baby because that baby needs her mother for or his mother for a year. If you do that, you're going to lose your billion dollars. And so the truth is, is that that rich person has to follow the same rules that everybody else is following. Otherwise, they are destroyed. The issue is the system, not the person. And, yeah,
4: and yeah, exactly. uh, you, have
1: to, you have to accept the inequality. You can be rich, that's one thing. But once you're rich, you have to accept the inequality in order to be a part of it. If you don't accept it, it will reject you.
3: Mm.
1: Well, I just want to know that because there's a thing about being black and white, you know, which I don't believe in, but there's also the thing about capitalism and capitalism is the enemy of each and every one of us. It's a system that says I work no matter what you think, feel, or say.
4: Well,
3: I don't know. I think I would disagree that a person who's rich can't make the decision. I mean, I think that there are choices a rich an uber rich person can make that can help him or her reject the dominant paradigm. I don't think that if Jeff Bezos made some decisions to treat his workers in a more humane way so that they could make a living and not be on public assistance, it would destroy him as the wealthiest person on the planet.
1: It it would. And and what you're doing is the same thing that Marx did. You're saying you know, Mr. Moneybags. And I'm just saying this Bezos is competing with people. Like, you may not think so. You say, well, he's so rich, nobody even competes with him. It's not true. The moment he steps back, and he's not stepping back, so yeah, I'm not apologizing for him. But the minute he steps back and stops doing everything he possibly can to make profit, he's in danger. And if he steps too far, he will be destroyed. And this is how capitalism works. This is, if you read capital, except for he talks about money, back, which it's a mistake. If you read capital, it is a structure. It's a system. It's not human beings. It's not like, oh, that's an evil human being. No, that's the human being who's accepted the system. And the system is actually the enemy. You know, and listen, I'm, like, I'm a race man. I talk about black people. I believe in black people. I write about black male heroes. But that doesn't mean that I don't understand that this, there's a system beyond it, which is the enemy of everybody. That's why when I talk to poor, racist white people, I say, look, man, you know, we're in the same place here. They're doing the same thing to us. You, don't, do you, you realize that, right? It's not I'm bad or you're bad. It's that they're doing it to us, and they're making us enemies. But we're not enemies. We're on the same side. I think it's it's a very important thing to, you know like for me to learn. Like, yeah, Bezos could you know do a little he could do a little better without hurting himself, but he can't do right without hurting himself. And what we're talking about is doing right, mm. and and that becomes the problem in the end. I mean, that's my argument. I'm like I'm not trying to say you're wrong. You know, I'm just <laughs> saying that's where I'm coming from.
3: I think that we are kind of parsing the individual's role in perpetuating the system versus the system being kind of all powerful, this kind of abstract, you know, word, the system, but the system is operated and and moved by people. So that's that's another long conversation that we can't really finish today. We can kill all the
1: uber rich people in the world today. And tomorrow, there'll be the same number of uber rich people. Mm, okay. I'll because to do that that's now. how the system works. That's how the bank works. That's how the corporation works. It, they don't care about the people. People die heart attacks all the time. They don't care. They just replace them with somebody else.
3: So I realize I'm running out of time, and I wanted to stick with this theme of history and who controls the narrative of history. And, you know, after the attacks of 9-11, you wrote that because of the experience of African Americans with racial injustice, that we should take the lead in resisting this country's militaristic response to terrorism. And you wrote that book before the U.S. attack on Iraq and really all the war crimes.
1: I published with Paul Coates in Black Classic Press. It was really fun.
3: You know, and really what all the war crimes since then, you know, including our attack on Libya, which killed Muammar Gaddafi. And now the country is, has open slave markets. So now the Trump administration states boldly that the International Criminal Court, which is recognized by most of the world to prosecute genocide, these types of war crimes, you know, has no jurisdiction to investigate charges against this country. So uh, we've always fork- done that so now, I guess it's just stated very boldly. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that, kind of bringing that book forward to today as we close out.
1: I just want to say Trump's an idiot. And what he, he states boldly, his smarter Republican uh, cohorts never say it all, but they do it. George W. Bush, after 9-11, assassinated Thousands of people around the world assassinated. They had, you know. Today we're assassinating people in Pakistan with drones, just driving around saying, "Oh, he looks like the guy we don't like. Let's kill him." You know, we're, we commit more crimes than like any of these people ever committed. That's it's true. And one of the things is, is that if indeed we make a commitment to truth, then we make a commitment to doing what's right. Because listen, somebody commits a crime. If you blow up, you know, my sister. You know, I don't care where you come from. I want, I want you to pay for that crime. And I don't care why you did it. I want you to pay for that crime. But the, the problem is, is we don't make our own people pay for the crimes that they commit. You know, Trump is actually, you know, he's an idiot. And so one of the good things about him is that, you know, people can, you know, say, oh, look, you said something stupid. We can argue against it. The problem is all the people around him, Pence, everybody else they'll do the same thing, but they'll never say it out loud. And that's the problem. You know, people come up to me, they complain about, about Trump, and I say, man, you have to think about George W. Bush, because George W. Bush completely destabilized the Middle East. You know, he, he, there were some evil people he attacked, but we became more evil. And, and I think that you and I agree on that. And I don't know what, I don't even know what to say. Yeah, I just look at him, I go, oh, my God, we're doing these evil things. I kind of enjoy the fact that he's stupid enough to say everything he says out loud. Most Republicans have enough sense to be quiet about it. So we're going to kill him, but we're not going to talk about it.
3: Well, I, I think that a lot of the people listening to the show will actually include in that kind of pantheon of of evildoers, uh, President Obama, who also drone people and also was more like with a nicer face, with that beautiful smile. And who was... Uh, and nobody bl- ever blamed him.
1: That so becomes the
3: problem. Yeah, sure. That's a maybe an interesting note to end the conversation about history, the individual and the system. And those are themes that you also cover in your new novel. You're yeah, being it. so sweet
1: to me because I know you disagree <laughs> with a lot I'm saying. But, I, but I, I don't mind because I think that we should, dis- the, the fact that we can talk and disagree becomes the most important thing. The most important thing, when I published a book with Paul Coates, my first book with Paul Coates, and the second year I went out traveling around and older black men would come up to us and say, you guys published that book together, right? And we'd say, yes. and say, are you still friends? And we said, we love each other. And that's what's most important, right?
3: Well, that's probably another conversation. I would love to talk to you about your relationship with Paul Coates. Or well, my relationship
1: with you. I'm actually talking about my relationship with you not with Paul. I, what I'm saying is is that we can disagree, but yeah. but you know that we're trying to get, in the base of it, we're trying to get the same things done.
3: I hope so. I hope so, because I'm definitely about the liberation of my people and the world people you
1: know well but the so. thing is is you can't you can't liberate my people without liberating all people
3: that's right that's otherwise right.
1: you you have a, a nation full of palestinians
3: none of us are free until all of us are free well thank you so much walter mosley his new book is the novel john woman
1: waltermosley.com
3: absolutely okay thank you thank you so much
7: Well, you better listen, my sisters and brothers, because if you do, you can hear. There are voices still calling across the years. And they're all crying across the ocean. And they're crying across the land. And they will, too, we all come to understand. None of us are free. Are free. None of None us, us are, are free. free. One of us has changed. None, None of us are free. And there are people still in darkness and they just can't see the light. If you don't say it's wrong, then that says it's right. We got to try to feel for each other. Let our brothers know that we care. Got to get the message send it out loud and clear. None of us are free. None of us are free. None of us are free. One of us are changed. None, 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 None of us are free.
3: This is On the Ground, On The groundshow.org. Voices of Resistance from the Nation's capital. I'm Esther Everham. And for the past three weeks. On the Ground has looked at D.C. in the era of climate change, talking to scientists, activists, city and transportation agencies, and everyday residents. On the first show, Christina Dahl of the Union of Concerned Scientists told us how geography and weather patterns make the nation's capital vulnerable. On the second show, we asked the question, what if D.C.'s public transportation service, the Metro, was free? The last show was devoted to activists opposing construction of a controversial electricity substation by Pepco Exelon in their mixed income neighborhood in Northwest DC. And we actually apologize for technical problems we had last week on that September 28th broadcast that interrupted that third installment of our climate series. But the complete show is posted on our website on thegroundshow.org. Now, for today, we know that climate change-induced storms are killing people here in the United States and all over the world. Changes in sea level is even considered a factor in this week's tsunami in Indonesia that killed upwards of 1,400 people. And climate change is also having other impacts on the health of the living. The D.C. area is not immune to increased incidence of illnesses such as asthma, Lyme disease, and West Nile virus which can be chronic or even deadly. I began by speaking with Katie Huffling, who lives on the eastern border of D.C. in Mount Rainier, Maryland.
2: So I was just recently diagnosed with Lyme disease this summer. I got bit by a tick in my yard and I wish I had been doing something fun like hiking or something. But no, I was probably mowing the lawn (laughs) and I didn't have a bullseye, which you look for. That's not everyone gets that um, kind of typical um, look around the bite. Um, I didn't get that. And then the way I presented most physicians um, or nurse practitioners wouldn't have figured out that it was Lyme disease. Um, I think I was bit maybe sometime in May. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I knew I got bit. I found the tick. This year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I... Um, it was still
3: in your, on your skin?
2: Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this, and it was in kind of a funny spot. It was on my hip. I, I guess it crawled up my leg. Ugh, that's, <laughs> Does it go under the skin? Or? So, and they're very small. It was like, like a sesame seed size yeah they're very tiny this little black tick at first I thought I had like a piece of sand on my skin and I kind of rubbed it and then it didn't move I'm like what is that it was a tick so I just kept watching it and like I said I didn't get a bullseye um, mark from it and really didn't think anything of it after that um and about a month and a half later I woke up with a stiff neck and by the end of the day on one side of my body on my neck and my shoulder I was in severe muscle spasms like excruciating pain Um, so I went to urgent care it was like a weekend and they're like oh you must have done something to your back or neck which was what I thought but I didn't remember doing anything And so that was my first symptom, and that lasted for about a month. And nothing that we were trying was really helping.
3: Right, they were doing all kinds of things like as if you had a sprained neck.
2: Exactly, exactly. And then after about a month, I started getting some of these more typical Lyme symptoms, like the headache and nausea, really tired, my hands started shaking, I started to get some sensory issues on my abdomen and back, whereas, like, my skin, like, if I touched it, didn't feel right. Hmm. Um, And that's because Lyme disease, the reason you get some of the hand shaking that some people get or what I got with this sensation um, is that it can cause nerve inflammation. I was actually talking to my brother who's had Lyme disease. He works outside, and he... And I was kind of whining to him, like, I don't feel good. I don't know what's wrong. He's like, have you been checked for Lyme disease? I was like, no, wait, I was bit by a tick a couple months ago. So I I got an appointment the next day and got tested. I was really lucky. Um, Lyme disease is much easier to treat if you have a new infection. And the blood tests that they do can show you whether it's a new or old infection. And mine was obviously new.
5: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, So I finished my course of antibiotics. I'm feeling a thousand times better. But it's something that Since I've been diagnosed and talking with people, I can't believe how many people I know that have had Lyme disease. Everyone I talk to either has had Lyme disease or has a close friend or relative who's had it. What's really challenging with Lyme disease is it has a wide range of symptoms, so it can be really challenging for healthcare providers to recognize. Um, But it's kind of flu type symptoms like headachy, nausea. You may have um, some pain and stiffness in your joints. You may be very tired. Um, I also had, um, besides those, I had significant muscle pain. My hands were shaking. Mm. Um, You know, it was really debilitating. And it's really given me a great appreciation for feeling healthy. You know, I really have never felt that sick for that long before. And it's really given me a whole new... Compassion for people dealing with chronic illnesses uh, because it really does take over your life.
3: Lyme disease, which Huffling believes she contracted in her backyard, is one of several diseases listed in the 2016 report Indicators for Climate Change, published by the Environmental Protection Agency. The EPA documents that nationwide the rate of reported cases of Lyme disease has approximately doubled since 1991. There are typically only dozens of cases in D.C., but that number doubled between 2013 and 2016, according to the Center for Disease Control. Other health-related indicators for climate change are West Nile virus, the lengthening of the ragweed pollen season, and heat-related deaths and hospitalizations. In addition to observing her Lyme disease as a patient, Katie Huffling also observes it as a registered nurse and executive director of a small not-for-profit organization, the Alliance of Nurses for Healthy Environments, where she works with nurses and national nursing organizations on a variety of environmental health issues, including climate change.
2: Well, when we first recognized what Lyme disease was, they noticed that it was in certain parts of the country, and certain numbers of people were being diagnosed with Lyme disease. And eventually, the CDC started tracking those cases of Lyme disease. And what we've found is that as the temperature warms, as our winters are not getting as cold as they used to be, then the areas where we're finding these ticks is expanding and more people are being exposed to these ticks, getting bit by them and contracting Lyme disease. We're also seeing, besides with Lyme disease, we're also seeing other tick-borne diseases that in many areas of the country we haven't seen them before. And Mm -hmm. so... And, and this is directly related to warmer winters, not having that um, tick die off like you normally would. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're getting parts of the country like northern Maine where there's animals with ticks on them year round because it's so warm now. It's actually really impacting some of their wild animal populations. Right.
3: And right here, we're talking about right, right here where you are on the border of D.C. Mm-hmm. And I know people have already seen tremendous changes in the climate here. It's September and it's still pretty hot. Mm-hmm. And we've had a very rainy summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in addition to the ticks and to the the Lyme disease, it's prolonging the allergy season, right? Mm-hmm. so I'm one of the people impacted by I think Greg, we just never been diagnosed or anything, but I know that every fall, if I'm okay for the rest of the year, I will start sneezing around now so um i don't I guess I don't think of it as a health issue. I kind of think of it as something that will pass, but it can be very um It can, you know, stop me from breathing easily at Mm -hmm. night. You know, I'm like, I feel like I'm going to sleep with my mouth open. I can't breathe. So I know that because of all these issues, your organization came out in support of just, you know, legislation to help curb climate change and for D.C. to get on the right track in terms of Mm -hmm. climate change. What kinds of impact do you think that could have?
2: Um Well, we know that climate change is being caused by man made greenhouse gases, and so two areas that we can have a really big impact is um, looking at where our energy comes from, so that's one of the main sources of greenhouse gases in the United States. The other source is through transportation, so emissions from our cars and trucks. And this bill um, addresses both of those in D.C. So looking at renewable um, sources of energy, such as wind or solar, that won't be um, emitting those greenhouse gases, and then incentivizing people to have lower emission vehicles, whether it be um, hybrids or electric vehicles, Mm -hmm. and I think the vehicles will have a really great impact very quickly. Um, Locally, um, DC has some of the worst air in the country. We have lots of vehicles going through the city on the beltway, and so having an impact on what types of vehicles are being driven through the city um, can have a really significant impact on local air quality.
3: Tim Lally, a spokesperson for D.C.'s Department of Health, said that the district does monitor for cases of Lyme disease and other vector-borne diseases, including cases in Rock Creek Park, but said that most of these cases produce mild symptoms in patients. One illness on the rise in D.C. which nurses like Huffling link to climate change, though it is not listed as an indicator by the EPA, is asthma. More on that after this break. This is On the Ground, ground onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Iveram. And this is the fourth part of our series, DC in the Era of Climate Change. And today we're talking about health and climate change. There is one illness on the rise in DC, which nurses like Katie Huffling do link to climate change, though it is not listed as an indicator by the EPA, and that is asthma. You could say that there is an epidemic of asthma in DC. This year, a coalition of organizations came together to raise awareness about the illness. According to the D.C. Asthma Coalition, one in six D.C. residents has asthma that leads to 3,000 days of hospitalizations each year. And though the illness is present in all wards of the city, it is more common in wards 5, 7, and 8, wards with higher concentrations of African-American residents and low-income residents. During the organizing for this year's Poor People's Campaign in May, Rhonda Hamilton, a housing activist in Southwest DC, made the link between air quality, environmental justice and housing justice.
8: My community faces environmental hazards every single day. The very air that we breathe is filled with contaminants that can damage our lungs and cause us to have various respiratory ailments such as asthma and COPD. I reside near Buzzard Point, which is a massive, contaminated brownfield site, and the future home to the D.C. United Soccer Stadium near Nets Park. It is also one of the most flood-prone areas in this city. As D.C. prepares to become a resilient and dynamic city, we are among pockets of communities which have been forgotten, overlooked, and neglected to carry out extremely aggressive redevelopment plans that were not designed for us. In other words, build by any means necessary, even at the risk of elimination and displacements of people in poverty. Many public housing residents, like myself, feel that we are on borrowed times within our own communities, and this is true for a number of other public housing residents. Our rights to live in quality environments free of hazards and poor living conditions are violated, stripped away, and taken by force, just as they have been for many other residents throughout this city.
3: Lois Wessel's work as a nurse spans patient care and teaching with an eye toward the impacts of climate change.
0: I'm a family nurse practitioner at Community Clinic Incorporated in Silver Spring, Maryland. I'm an instructor in the School of Nursing and Health Studies at Georgetown University and I'm a consultant to the Mid-Atlantic Center for Children's Health and the Environment at Georgetown. I think if we take a step back and think about the planet getting warmer every year, then we can think about what kind of diseases are more likely to grow when it's warm out. And even in our own houses, we may see more mold or mildew when it's warm out, certainly we see those things in the summer more than we do in the winter. Um, But if we look even in the last couple of decades, we've heard of more people with things like Lyme disease or um, in other parts of the world, dengue fever, certainly Zika. And you think about who are the vectors or the people or the the creatures that transmit those disease, um, and it's ticks or mosquitoes. And they're like us. They like warm environments. And so as the planet gets warmer and warmer, we're seeing an increase in mosquitoes. Um, And some of those are the mosquitoes that carry dengue fever. We see an increase in ticks. And some of those are the ticks that carry Lyme disease. And so one of the things that I've seen specifically, I work mostly with a urban Latino population. And I had a patient recently who tested positive for Lyme disease. And I explained to her the process of a tick living on a deer and the tick then biting her and that's how it was probably transmitted although some mice also carry these ticks and she didn't know what a deer was and i showed her a picture on the internet of a deer and she said well that's not a horse that's not a cow i've never seen one of those before and i said did you ever go to rock creek park or to sligo park or any of these places where you may have been exposed to a deer and she had not so this is a woman living in an urban area who got exposed to a deer tick that carried Lyme disease and she developed Lyme disease. And sometimes as healthcare providers, we think about um, assessing people. Have they been hiking? Have they been camping? Are they working as gardeners in places where they may have been exposed to certain things that cause the symptoms and then we can test them for Lyme disease. But she, as far as she knew and from what she told me, she hadn't been in any of the places where she could have been exposed Uh, to a tick that carried Lyme disease. And I think that as the planet gets warmer and our communities get warmer, we're seeing things like an increase in asthma. Um, I mentioned some of the vector-borne illnesses. And we have to think about who are the people who are most vulnerable. And it tends to be children and the elderly and people who already are sick with other chronic diseases that they may have. They are the ones who get sicker and don't... um, get well as quickly. Another really good example, and we're seeing an increase in asthma and other respiratory illnesses. Um, And again, the people who are most affected are the poorest people who don't have access to good health care, who may worry about going to an emergency room because they're worried about the bill, who may be predisposed because they already are unhealthy from something else, diabetes or or another problem, and they get a respiratory illness. On top of that, um, again, or they're elderly or young people, it has a compounded effect on their on their healthcare.
3: So you mentioned Rock Creek Park, and how much does that come up as a factor in terms of you know a place that is a park in the middle of an urban area where we have deer, <laughs> uh, and uh, do you do you see that come up often in terms of, of as a place where people might? you know, contract Lyme disease?
0: Well, yes and no. I think, as with everything, we have to weigh it out. A a flip side of all of this um, is that people are less hesitant to go outside. It's too hot. It's too cold. It's too rainy. We've certainly had a lot of rain in DC this year. And we know the importance for children and adults of being in nature, all the value that nature has. Mm -hmm. And so I would not dissuade people from being in Rock Creek Park. It's an amazing public place for people in the district and beyond to Mm -hmm. be exposed to nature, to hike, to bike, to see animals, to see birds, to Mm -hmm. get their feet wet in the creek. But I think people need to know about prevention of something like Lyme disease. So after a lovely afternoon with friends and family in the park, checking their bodies for a potential tick that has been on. And it's important to point out that ticks need to be on for over 36 hours to transmit Lyme disease. So if somebody goes to the park and comes home and finds a tick and pulls it off, we're not talking about them developing Lyme disease here. It's a tick that stays on for much longer.
3: So the other thing I wanted to ask you about was the education part. Mm -hmm. I I talked to Katie yesterday. Mm -hmm. She talked about how very often the environment and the, those kind of impacts aren't a part of people's education, mm. like for doctors or nurses. Yeah,
0: I think you're you're absolutely right. And, and fortunately, the Alliance of Nurses for Healthy Environments is working hard on this issue, as are many other people. I know at Georgetown, we've been looking at how to infuse environmental health and climate change issues into both the medical school and the nursing school curriculum. And again, if you think about all of the medical problems that may be related to, to climate change, uh, heat-borne illnesses, people coming in on a really hot afternoon who, who are having some kind of symptoms related to ongoing heat. It's it's important for nurses and doctors to understand how climate change is impacting uh, the kinds of diseases that, that we are seeing. So I think we're doing a better job at talking to students about the environment. And again, both in terms of diseases to look for that may be or symptoms related to environmental change, as well as the importance of connecting people with the environment because um, many studies have been done that show the importance of being outside, including an interesting study that was done in Philadelphia recently that looked at a park in a low-income neighborhood of Philly and it looked at uh, uh, an empty lot that was then converted into a garden and it assessed people's feelings when they walked by that empty lot versus when they walked by the garden. And guess what? They felt better when that, Urban to gay was revitalized into something um, beautiful. Cortisol levels drop when people go outside. Certainly we're very uh, connected to our devices and, and that's adults as well as children. So getting people outside where they can run freely and use a lot of the physical mm-hmm. aspects that the outdoor invites them to do is really important. There's been some studies that have looked at children and vision with being outside mm. and that children who are looking close up all day are not exercising the muscles in their eyes that they need to prevent myopia or nearsightedness. When you're outside, you may look at a bug and then look up at a bird and then look over because you heard your friend call you and then play with a stick in the dirt and that back and forth is good muscular exercise to prevent eye diseases. So we certainly want to, as healthcare providers, encourage people to spend time outdoors, but we want to make sure that the outdoors is still available to people and that we protect um, our, our environment from all the problems of of climate change. The Alliance of Nurses for
3: Healthy Environments is one of the organizations supporting passage of the Clean Energy DC Act, introduced by DC Councilmember Mary Che earlier this year.
2: You know, I'm really hopeful that our policymakers, like the DC Council, that are really, being leaders on these issues, we can't wait on climate change. It's happening. The science is clear. It's already impacting people's health, and we can't wait to take action. And so, we need more politicians like the DC Council um, to really be thinking ahead. and And I think it's a win win. It's you know, you may have to do some of this initial investment, but then when you look at the health benefits, it's. You know, the cost savings are clear.
3: And Katie Huffling, a nurse on the front lines of climate change, will have the last word on today's show. Huffling is monitoring her own health too and managing her own recovery from Lyme disease. This is On the Ground, on thegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital on Pacifica Radio. Our series, DC in the Era of Climate Change, is supported. By a grant from the DC Commission on the Arts and Humanities, you can listen to the entire series as well as complete versions of all of our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. The music we played this hour included Kendrick Lamar Feel, Mary J. Blige Family Affair, Solomon Burke None of Us Are Free, and Stevie Wonder Free. You can also write us at the website. We'd love to hear from you. If you are a listener and are on Facebook, please like our Facebook page, On The Ground Show. Our Facebook page has a picket sign with green letters that say, On The Ground. On The Ground Show is also on Twitter, and we are on iTunes, under the title WPFW On The Ground. I'm Esther Averam. I'll be at the International Locks Festival October 6th and 7th in Philadelphia. But until next time keep raising your voice. Peace.